Recently, I've developed a fascination for words that don't exist in English. There's Kummerspeck from German, which means the excess weight gained from emotional overeating, or more literally, grief bacon. There's Shimomajamo in Georgian, which I very much associate with. It's the word for when you're full but you can't stop eating. Or more literally, I accidentally ate the whole thing. There's Ya'abani from the Arabic for may you bury me, which is used as a hopeful declaration that you will die before somebody you love deeply because you cannot bear to live without them. Tartle in Scots is the panicky hesitation just before you have to introduce somebody and you can't quite remember what their name is. <laughs> Saudade in Portuguese, which is a feeling of longing or melancholy for something that doesn't quite exist and may never do so, and is supposedly characteristic of the Portuguese and Brazilian temperament. Shalom in Hebrew, that we so often translate to peace, but means something so much more, something encapsulating harmony and wholeness, welfare and tranquility. And the one that I probably use most in my day-to-day life, bedgasm, the feeling of intense joy and relief that comes from getting into bed after a very long day. But I'm not quite sure about the roots of that one. But one of the ones that I find most fascinating and beautiful is Ubuntu, the Ngoni Bantu word that Desmond Tutu brilliantly summarised as meaning, I am because you are. You cannot be you without me being me. Is there a better way to articulate that we are all just as important as each other? So I've become curious as to why English isn't quite capable of articulating these words. Did we not know that we were missing them? Did we not need them because we haven't felt these emotions? Or do we not have a word for Ubuntu because our society hasn't in fact agreed that every person is inherently and equally valuable? My brother and his family live near Frankfurt in Germany and I love the way that my nephews sometimes accidentally sound just like Yoda because they use English words in a German sentence structure and get very excited about the squirrel in the garden there is. And although it occasionally sounds a bit mangled now, their brains are, of course, incredible machines that are expanding and being shaped by both languages, with all evidence suggesting that it is brilliant for your brain to be bilingual. And maybe it's because of them that I was so fascinated by a study that learned that if you give a picture of a person doing something to a German speaker, they will tend to describe the action, but also the goal of the action. So they would tend to say, a woman is walking towards her car, or a man cycles towards the supermarket. Whereas English monolingual speakers would simply describe the same pictures as a woman is walking, or a man is cycling, without mentioning the goal of the action. And most mind-blowing to me is that somebody who speaks both languages might describe the picture totally differently depending on what language you ask the question in. That's because the worldview assumed by German speakers is a holistic one. They tend to look at the event as a whole, whereas English speakers tend to zoom in on the event and focus only on the action. 
and it turns out that the language you speak shapes the very way that you see the world. It sets the parameters for what you expect to happen or can even comprehend to be possible. So maybe bilingualism is so good for you because being able to see the world from more than one viewpoint is necessary for thriving communities. As you'll know if you've been here for the last couple of weeks, between now and Advent, we're embarking on a journey through the Bible. People that you might not be used to hearing from in the sermon slots are introducing you to people that you might not have read about from the Bible. I'm introducing you to you, or more specifically, as we might say up north, to use as a collective. Because when we heard earlier from Jeremiah that the Lord has plans for you, he wasn't talking about an individual person, he was talking to a whole nation of people. But another word that we're missing in modern English is the plural for you. So if the words and grammar structure that we use fundamentally shape our view of the world and set parameters on what we consider to be possible, what does it mean for us that we have removed the often used collective you in the Bible and made it all about you and me as individuals? There are almost 5,000 verses with the plural you, which has been translated in English simply to you, and therefore could lead any of us who only speak English to think that it's directed at them personally rather than at the church as a community. So what have we missed in both our reading of the Bible and our understanding of the world? Because our brains will almost always hear the word you to mean me alone and not us as a community. What if the plans that God has for us mean that we can only prosper together and never by ourselves? So another famous and often quoted passage, the Sermon on the Mount, is also directed at a community to the extent that the theologian Stanley Hauerwas says that you cannot live out those instructions by yourself. And that is the very point. The demands of the sermon are meant to make you more dependent on God and more dependent on one another. The only hope of living them out, of being salt and light, is to be salt and light together. The you in Jeremiah 29 was directed at the Israelites, currently in exile in Babylon, and who were going through a particularly traumatic and difficult time at the hands of the Babylonians. But the instruction from Jeremiah was to seek the welfare of the city that you find yourselves in, pray for it, and work for its shalom. To expect people who are suffering at the hands of their oppressors to pray for them is a totally unjustifiable ask. But forces the Israelites to consider how their own welfare is bound up with those around them. Those who they were most likely, up until that point, thinking of themselves as very separate from and different to. The word that the Church of England uses to describe our time between vicars is vacancy which in other contexts means the state of being empty or vacant. I don't want to compare our life after Dave with what the Israelites went through in exile. But I do want to acknowledge that the way we think about and talk about this time in the life of our community could have the tendency to make us feel like we're just waiting for the next bit, that we're temporarily on hold. 
The Israelites reading Jeremiah were expecting to go home, desperate to do so. They were waiting and they were sure that it would happen soon. They were keeping their lives on hold. But Jeremiah says to them, build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. How will we continue to build our lives here at St Luke's as a community, even during a time of vacancy? How will we plant for the future, continue to do life and to celebrate love? But most importantly, when we think about you as plural, and not just you as an individual, it's a reminder for us to consider who this you is. The arc of the Bible is to keep widening the scope of people who belong. So how can we also pray for and work for the prosperity of the wider community that we find ourselves in? Of course, if you speak another language, all of this is probably totally obvious to you. But it might never have occurred to me if I didn't need to rely on people who do speak Hebrew or Greek to help me out. So for me, it's another reminder that we need each other. And particularly, we need people who are not just like us. We need those who have a different language, a different background, a different way of seeing the world in order to understand the fullness of what the Bible's got to say and to be able to live it out. We learn new words and new perspectives by listening to people who are not just like us. So over the next few weeks, I encourage you to listen to people you're not used to listening to, in church and out. They might have spotted something in the text that's never occurred to you before. So if they say something that surprises you or seems to make little sense, sit with it anyway and reflect that just because it doesn't make sense to you, it might not be useless. You might just realise that to Martin Alfden Argen Harben, you have tomatoes on your eyes. <laughs> or less literally, you are not seeing things the way that other people see them. Amen.